I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to All The Small Things with me, Venetia. If you're new here, you are so welcome. Please do make sure you're subscribed as I'd love to have you back. And there is an archive of really wonderful conversations for you to dive headfirst into after you finish this episode. If you've been here plenty of times before and you're enjoying the show, please do leave me a five-star review on iTunes. This takes no time at all and is massively helpful in getting the word of the podcast out there. Now, if you're anything like me, you will spend a lot of time worrying about the climate crisis. So many of my thoughts are consumed with what the climate crisis means for the future of our planet. And I worry about it a lot, which is why I'm super grateful to have today's guest, Tessa Khan, on the show with us. She is someone who is doing such fantastic work to look out for the future of our planet. And I hope you find this podcast useful. Tessa Khan is an environmental lawyer and she is the founder and director of Uplift, a new organisation helping to move the UK towards a fossil fuel free future. They strategically resource, connect and elevate ideas and voices to set in motion a just transition away from fossil fuel production that's in proportion with the scale of the climate crisis. Before this role, she co-founded and was co-director of the Climate Litigation Network, which supports legal cases related to climate change mitigation and climate justice. She's also a trustee for Green Grants Fund UK and the Green New Deal UK, and she's part of the steering committee for the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Initiative, which is a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels faster, fairly and forever. In short, Tessa's CV is highly impressive. If you know me, you'll know that I'm big on calling out greenwashing in the fashion industry. But guess who invented greenwashing? It's the fossil fuel industry. If you're UK-based, you should know that the government has spent £4 billion propping up the oil and gas industry since we signed the Paris Agreement in 2016. £4 billion. At the end of October, the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26, will be taking place in Glasgow. Boris Johnson has referred to this as the turning point for humanity, yet he is the leader of our government and that same government that is spending billions propping up the oil and gas industry, which is directly causing the overheating and destruction of our planet. It's highly hypocritical. In today's episode, we talk about the fact that the government are set to approve the climate wrecking Cambo oil field later this year. And if we want a livable climate, we simply cannot allow any new oil and gas extraction. So please do head to stopcambo.org to take action. That is stopcambo.org. Right on with today's episode, here's Tessa Khan on all the small things. Let us start as we always do. I would love to hear actually a little bit about whether or not you have some kind of morning routine or any rituals and habits that you like to practice first thing, because you strike me as an incredibly organized person. Yeah, I am a pretty routine bound person. I 
really try to reserve mornings for the things that I know that I need to do for myself. That for me involves some meditation and some form of exercise. You know, I don't love exercise, but I know that if I leave it for the end of the day, which is very tempting to do every single morning, it's just not going to happen because once I allow myself to kind of get into the flow of work and everything else, that just takes over. So I'm pretty strict about carving that time out and making sure I'm committed to it in the mornings. I am the same. I find that if I can dedicate that time to something like meditation or exercise or ideally both, I am in such better stead. I haven't done that now for like maybe a week or 10 days and I'm really feeling it. I feel constantly jet lagged. It really starts to register quite quickly, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd also love to hear a little bit about where you grew up and a little bit about your family and kind of some of your childhood memories, just to give our listeners a really good grounding of who you are. Sure. So I was actually born in the UK, in Manchester. My father was a PhD student here. So he and my mum had just arrived from Bangladesh, which is where they're from, for him to do that degree here. And while they were here, that's when I was born together with my older sister. And then shortly afterwards, we moved because of my father's work to Singapore for a few years. And then at the age of about five, we all moved to Perth in Western Australia, uh, the most isolated capital city in the world. I spent the next 20 or so years there. And so that's really where I was educated and grew up. Is that the Aussie accent I can hear? Yeah, I mean, I've been out of Australia now almost for as long as I was in Australia, but it's just really hard to shake. <laughs> I love it. Um, and I'd also really love to to hear a little bit about how you got into environmental law, which is obviously how I came across your work. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into your career and whether or not it was actually, you know, your goal for a long time to get into this field of work? It was not at all something I would have ever imagined doing, actually, especially when I was growing up. I think I was always interested in working on social justice and inequality. And I think that's a function of having grown up in a society that is pretty racist (laughs) and also being an immigrant with, you know, still a lot of family in Bangladesh, which is where we would often spend our summers and just seeing and being completely bewildered by the vast inequality between, you know, what my family in Bangladesh lived with and experienced every day compared to what people in Australia took for granted. And it was clear to me that it's not because people in Australia are inherently superior, but that there is something deeply wrong with the way that our current systems and structures are set up, that that level of inequality in the world exists. So that was always something that drove my interests and I went on to study law and from a pretty early point in my law degree realised that it's a thing to be a human rights lawyer and so was pretty keen on pursuing that. I did some work in India and Egypt during my degree that confirmed what that path offered in terms of the potential to address some of those problems of inequality and injustice. I then spent a number of years working internationally as a human rights lawyer and campaigner and sort of more broadly as an advocate. I went through a number of different contexts, which in retrospect all make sense to me, but at the time really felt like I didn't have a plan. I sort of 
felt like I was just moving from one thing to another, but it was a real lesson for me to follow my intuition because it's led me to where I am today, which feels like exactly where I should be. I absolutely love that you feel like everything is kind of slotted into place. I always love hearing people talk about that, especially because I think it's very comforting for people who are not in that place. I'm really interested to know what was that kind of initial phase of your career like? It might make sense for me to explain how I sort of transitioned from human rights law into focusing on climate change, which has, you know, really been the thing that I'm all about for the last six years or so. But so I was working in Asia, actually for a regional women's rights network called the Asia Pacific Forum on Women, Law and Development. You know, it was really about bringing gender analysis of a range of different issues, social and development and economic, you know, that recognises that women are acutely disadvantaged and discriminated against in almost every single realm of public and private life. And it became clear to me that actually, even when we talk about the climate crisis, women are among the most vulnerable groups to the impacts of climate change, but they also have the agency and the knowledge and the ability to also help us to shift away from the system that's creating climate change and and to provide those solutions. You know, and I was also living in Asia at a time when there were already an escalating number of extreme weather events like a typhoon that hit the Philippines in 2014 that was the strongest typhoon that had ever made landfall at the time. And people were already starting to connect the dots to climate change. And of course, a lot of my family is still in Bangladesh and the impacts of climate change have been manifesting there for some time. So I was starting to realise that actually, if I was serious about human rights, probably the biggest threat to the enjoyment of our human rights that we face right now is what the climate crisis is going to do to our livelihoods, to our lives, to our ability to just secure the things that we've taken for granted. And so that was really, for me, the impetus to make the transition into focusing on climate change. That all coincided with me hearing about a lawsuit that had been brought by some Dutch lawyers against the Dutch government. And they basically went on to win that case. And it was the first case in the world in which a court has ordered a government to reduce the country's greenhouse gas emissions. And it just seemed to me like a pretty big breakthrough in how we actually hold governments accountable for the promises that they've been making for decades now to actually take the climate crisis seriously. So that was a really exciting thing to hear about. And I basically cold called these Dutch lawyers and offered to quit my job to join their legal team because the government was appealing that decision. So that was sort of just at the beginning of the journey of that case, but also to work with them to help lawyers and activists in countries around the world learn from what they'd done so that they could then bring their own cases against their own national governments, demanding that they do more to take the climate crisis seriously. And so that sort of became how I spent the next five or six years. And it's now turned into, you know, kind of what we set out to establish, which is really a global movement that uses litigation as a tool to hold governments. And now also the fossil fuel industry, who I think are the other real culprits in all of this, responsible for what they've done and failed to do. That's such an amazing move that you did that, that you cold called and and got involved and used like all these incredible skills that you have. 
So in 2016, you co-founded the Climate Litigation Network. This supports people around the world in taking their governments to call over their insufficient climate policies. Now, so many citizens, including a UK group, have done this over the past few years. So can you tell me about some of the kind of most inspirational moments that you've had working with this network? So yeah, the Climate Litigation Network was really the product of that conversation with these Dutch lawyers where we were like... Let's try and help other people to do what's happened here in the Netherlands. I think for me, one of the biggest highlights was working with this incredibly determined NGO in Ireland called Friends of the Irish Environment. You know, it's a completely voluntary organisation. And they had decided that they wanted to take the Irish government to court because Ireland at the time had one of the worst climate track records in Europe and was lobbying hard for other countries to be less ambitious. So basically really the sort of people that you want to take to court. They didn't really have any money. They just had a whole lot of enthusiasm and determination. And we supported them to bring this case against the Irish government, which two years later culminated in them winning in the Supreme Court of Ireland, which led to the kind of main Climate Change Act being overturned by the court on the grounds that it wasn't ambitious enough. You know, it was a watershed kind of unprecedented moment in Irish legal history and political history. They had just inspired students and ordinary people to give up their time to rally outside courts and in the streets and, you know, to just understand what their government was failing to do and what it actually owed them. And the fact that they won was was kind of the icing on the cake. This makes me think a lot about how it's important for more of us to feel like we can take action and also have more literacy around kind of the legalities of these things and what actually our governments are doing. As an outsider, it feels incredibly complex. And when I hear about these cases, I'm like, well, this is amazing, but like how how do you think we can kind of empower everyday people to really feel like they can understand this stuff I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this yeah I totally understand that it can seem really you know that you have to understand what the legal framework is before you can make a decision about whether or not your government's doing something wrong but what I would say to people is trust your instincts. If it feels like it's not right that your government is still opening up oil fields or coal mines or new airports at a time when we're experiencing flash flooding in London and lethal wildfires in Turkey and, you know, so on, you're right. Like, that's wrong. And actually, every government in the world has a duty to protect the residents in their country from harm. And they're all failing to do that. And there is a basic legal argument to be made that that is unlawful. So that in itself is worth A, asserting boldly, you can do that without talking to any expert, and B, potentially talking to a lawyer about, you know, whether or not that is sufficient ground to then potentially take your government to court. Like you say, you know, our governments and oil companies have consistently backtracked. They've consistently shirked any responsibility and they've been doing this for decades. Why do you think this is? Why are they taking no responsibility for this? It doesn't make any sense to me. I actually like I can't get my head around it. If you know the information, why aren't you taking accountability? There hasn't been any actual consequence for them continuing with business as usual, which is why it's so important that all of us 
actually create some sense of consequence for them, whether it's taking them to court or boycotting their products or showing up in the street or voting. For them in the short term, it's like good news. It's more profit. It's another three years in government, you know, if if they can get away with it. And that's what they've been counting on. And of course, with the fossil fuel industry in particular, they've deliberately misled us about the impact of their products and how serious climate change is. They've done everything they can to try to create confusion. And they've hoped that that will mean that we never actually get around to saying exactly what you said, which is what the heck is going on? You guys have known about this and you continue to profit from this stuff and deliberately stop the change that we know is possible and necessary. When our governments and companies and corporations talk about becoming climate neutral by 2030 or whatever date, you know, they say, I've heard that often we're saying we're doing one good thing. This is classic greenwashing, but then we're actually often exporting our carbon emissions to countries in the global South who did not perpetuate this issue, already suffering the consequences of the climate crisis that we have caused in the global North. This feels incredibly unjust. Could you talk to us a little bit about this exporting of emissions and how we can prevent that from happening? It really is about countries in the global north shutting down manufacturing you know and factories here which are carbon intensive processes and then not doing anything about the demand for those products that those processes create like plastics or clothes but just relying on us to import those products from another country And because of the way that we currently count greenhouse gas emissions, we only count the emissions that are produced within our own country, not the emissions that we consume via other countries having produced that stuff. So, you know, if we buy some children's toy that's made in China, the emissions involved in producing that toy are counted towards China's total. The atmosphere doesn't care if the emissions are created in the UK or in China, as long as we're demanding those products and consuming them at the rate that we are, that's a problem regardless of where those products are made and and those emissions are created. That's why your work and, you know, the work that other people do, which is really about consumption and our responsibility as consumers is so important because that's a huge part of the picture that governments manage to brush under the carpet because it's not officially counted as being our problem. We know that overconsumption is a huge issue and is directly linked to climate breakdown. And the onus gets put on citizens for consuming too much. However, there is currently nothing to stop the big billionaire corporations from marketing us stuff that we don't need. They tell us this lie that this stuff will make us happy. But there's also nothing to suggest that there will be any stop to the scale at which these companies are currently producing. So surely this is where the law comes in. Is this where we need legally binding agreements? Do you think that's possible? Do you think that's something that we can expect to see in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And I totally agree with you that this isn't about individual consumer choice. It's about creating that sort of structural change that means across the industry, there is change. And I mean, basically, it has to happen. The question of whether or not, you know, it's possible under current political conditions is sort of beside the point. We need agreement on that scale if we're going to tackle this problem in the time 
and at the scale that we need to. You know, if you look at labour rights within the fashion industry, you know, often it is crisis that then precipitates that kind of industry level reform. And it has happened. I mean, there is plenty of criticism to still be articulated, I think, about the huge weaknesses in the protection of garment workers, for example, and the frameworks that have been developed following, you know, the Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh in 2013. But I think that that's exactly the kind of structure and framework that we need to be advocating for across the fashion industry, across all sectors. And it's absolutely possible for us to enact that if we make it part of the thing that we're demanding, you know. Love that kind of positivity and attitude. I love it. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. At the beginning of this year, you founded Uplift with an aim to support and energize the movement for a fossil-free UK. A big part of this mission has been trying to stop Cambo. So I would love to hear a little bit more about this campaign, which you've been working on alongside Friends of the Earth Scotland. What is the latest here and how can listeners get involved? The kind of context for this is that climate change is mostly caused by us burning fossil fuels. 80% of the greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere are caused by us burning oil, gas and coal. And what has become very clear is that if we're going to stay within safe climate limits, we cannot extract more oil, gas or coal. You know, the existing coal fields and oil and gas fields that are already in production will take us up to and beyond safe climate limits. So the last thing that we can be doing is opening up new oil and gas fields. And the UK government is currently considering approving the Cambo oil field. So it's this massive field off the coast of the Shetland Islands, it would lead and it's the first phase of production to emissions that are the equivalent of 18 coal-fired power stations running for a year. So a disaster. And so we are coordinating a campaign, as you said, with Friends of the Earth Scotland and loads of other groups to try to get the government to say no to the development of that. And it's especially important this year because the UK government is also hosting these climate talks 
in Glasgow in November, which are international talks that governments convene every year to talk about what we're doing on climate change. But, you know, we are in a critical decade in terms of the action that we need to take on climate change. And the UK government has a responsibility to motivate other countries to be more ambitious about their climate policies. And they're just not going to have the credibility to do that if they're also approving an oil field. So it really matters, you know, whether or not Cambo gets approved. But it also matters because after Cambo, there are at least 16 more big oil and gas projects that are up for approval in the UK. This was news to me and was kind of why I founded Uplift is the UK is the second largest oil and gas producer in Europe. And at the moment, we provide massive subsidies to that industry to keep it alive. And we have a policy of maximising economic recovery of offshore oil and gas. So we have no plans to wind down production. And the 16 plus projects that are in the pipeline are an indication of that, which is why it's so important that we just draw a line in the sand and say no more, starting with Cambo. It is actually just the ultimate hypocrisy, hearing more and more the government talk about their climate plans and initiatives and how they're, you know, it's at the forefront of everything they're doing. It just makes me so angry. And I cannot believe there are 16 more in the works. So I guess Stop Cambo, if you were to be successful, that would really set the tone for the next 16. It would make it almost impossible for the government to then approve the subsequent oil and gas fields, although you never know, which is why we're geared up for a for a long fight. It would also be huge news if we did manage to prevent Cambo because we are up against the most powerful industry in the world, the oil and gas industry, and the UK government is its friend. So it's going to take a lot to stop it. But I think even if we start to show that every new oil and gas project is going to be met by resistance, the government is going to be held accountable for each of those decisions, we will have an effect on longer term of whether or not these oil and gas projects get approved. And already, you know, there's evidence that the level of protest around Cambo is freaking out investors who are the ones who are financing these fields, who are like, you know, we don't really want to have to deal with all of that. (laughs) So we'll, we'll go put our money elsewhere. So, you know, there are lots of ways in which our protest and our collective efforts will make a difference to this. So for anyone listening who would like to get involved in this campaign, how can they do that? And also perhaps people who aren't UK based but have something similar going on in their in their country where they live, what would you suggest for them to get involved? With Cambo specifically, we are about to launch a website which will have loads of information and actions that people can take and resources, you know, if they want to read up about it, you know, actions starting from emailing your MP to joining direct actions and all of the other ways in which you can get involved. So that's going to be stopcambo.org. Keep an eye out for that. But in the meantime, we've got social channels, Instagram and Twitter, both Stop Cambo, where you can follow along and join the campaign, basically. And we would love it if you did that. We're already, I think, totally defeating everybody's expectations about how powerful we can be. And then with all of the other oil and gas projects and fossil fuel projects happening around the world, you know, I always say that the best thing that we can do as individuals is not act as individuals, you know, join the collective effort. That's what's going to make the difference here, given the scale of this problem. So find your local climate organisation or start your own group, but I'm 100% sure that there will be an NGO, whether it's a Friends of the Earth or a Greenpeace or 
others who will be leading on this work and who can help you kind of get oriented and figure out what what you can contribute. Awesome. And I'm also wondering what kind of other key aims you have at Uplift for the next year or so. We are also supporting a court case that Michaela Loach and a couple of others have filed against the UK government, challenging basically the massive amounts of money that the UK government gives to oil and gas companies each year. So that's being referred to as the paid to pollute case. And if you want to learn more about that, that's at paidtopollute.org.uk. And the other thing at the heart of what Uplift is trying to do is provide some support to the workers in the oil and gas sector and their communities to transition out of that industry because, you know, it's not their fault that they've gotten caught up in what's turned out to be the most dangerous industry in the world. A lot of them, you know, want an alternative and at the moment they're not getting the support that they need to retrain and reskill and move into, you know, what we know are the industries of the future, which are the zero carbon ones. So we really want to actively help that transition to happen as well so that we're not just demanding that something be closed down, but we're also trying to create, you know, the positive alternative. Quite busy then. How many are there of you? Like how many people work at Uplift? So we're growing, but there are seven of us at the moment, which is, yeah, it's an amazing team. But, you know, really our whole model is to kind of work in collaboration. No one organisation is going to be able to do this stuff on our own. We absolutely have to create a movement. And that's what we're trying to do is basically there is a role for all of us in this work. And we're all going to need to be involved one way or another if we're going to win. That's super inspiring. Thank you. The potential of court cases around climate change is pretty vast and it's pretty exciting. In a recent Guardian piece on the Hague's decision to force Shell to cut emissions by 45% by 2030, you said, and I'm going to quote you, given the attribution of responsibility for Shell's climate policy to its CEO, it creates a new avenue for liability of company directors. The door to real corporate accountability for the climate crisis is finally wide open. Could you chat to us a little bit more about this? Oil and gas companies are at the sort of pointiest end of companies contributing to the climate crisis, but there are lots of companies that do that in lots of different ways, starting with banks that are financing fossil fuel projects, all the way through to supermarkets that are buying beef that is raised on, you know, deforested Amazon land, for example. So that's all to say that All companies should be thinking very hard about the contribution that they're making to the climate crisis because what the Shell case has done is the court has basically said that we are going to hold the CEO of Shell responsible for the overall climate policy that Shell has. And in the past, you know, directors of companies, their job has just been to make money for shareholders and make sure that the kind of bottom line looks good. But now what companies are responsible for in a legal sense is expanding beyond just their duties to keep the company healthy from a financial perspective. And they're being held responsible for the broader impacts of what they do. And the implication of that shell case is that that could include directors being held legally accountable for the contribution that their company's making to the climate crisis. So that's pretty big. 
It is pretty big. And it's also, I, I, don't, I have these conversations with my parents who are obviously an older generation. I talk about like you, all of these things that are so commonly spoken about in climate spaces, you know, holding directors to account, taxing the super wealthy, like all of this stuff. And my parents have a kind of, or my dad in particular has this attitude of like, you can't beat these people. They're too powerful. They've got too much money. Like, what's the point? What would you say to people who feel as though these people have too much power and money and that we can't defeat them? I would just say that that is exactly what people have said in every movement for social and political change before we win, you know. Of course, there is a power imbalance. That's how we've gotten into the mess that we're in. But, you know, there was a power imbalance with slavery or with the civil rights movement in the US or, you know, with the women's movement, you know, in the 1940s and 50s the idea that women would exercise the degree of freedom and enjoy the rights that they have today would have been inconceivable. And yet we've kind of made a lot of progress, not gone all the way, obviously. But, you know, I think that's an understandable feeling, but it doesn't really get us anywhere in terms of being able to envisage the world after we've won. And that's what we need to do. And we also need to realise that they may have formal kinds of power and they may have wealth, but we are right. <laughs> we have the moral high ground. You know, we have all of the facts on our side in terms of the climate crisis, the urgency, everything else is on our side. And they're just trying to protect a dwindling amount of authority that they have in the face of this massive mess that they've created. So actually, I think if there's any moment in history in which we can flip this, it's now. I love that. That reimagination that you've just spoken about just feels like such an important form of resistance against people like my dad, like love you dad, but this isn't helpful. In your 2018 TED talk, you stated that governments have knowingly accepted their climate change policies will affect women, children, indigenous people and people living in poverty the most. How much work do you think there is to be done towards making people's understanding of the effects of climate change truly intersectional? I think that that work is being led by women and Indigenous people and all of the most affected groups. They're doing, I think, an amazing job of educating people about the way in which they are specifically affected and really acutely impacted by the climate crisis. But it does require us, as in all areas of life, to just bring a different lens to the way that we think about climate change, you know, and the way that it affects us. I encourage people to always listen to the people who are doing the kind of gender analyses of climate change and Indigenous communities and obviously the student movement who are amazing, you know, the youth strikers who are so articulate about the unbearable burden that they're being asked to take on in terms of the intergenerational inequity of climate change. You know, it's been really encouraging actually how much that's starting to penetrate the way that people think about the climate crisis. For sure. Yeah, I completely agree. How would you feel about doing a quick fire round? Uh, I feel nervous, but I'm okay with it. <laughs> no pressure. Quick fire with Tessa. Wake up early or have a lion? Obviously have a lion every time. Tea or coffee? Tea. Pancakes or waffles? Pancakes. Twitter or Instagram? Twitter. Fiction or non-fiction? 
Tough one. Non-fiction at the moment. Podcasts or Netflix? Podcasts. Sunrise or sunset? Definitely sunset. And finally, routine or spontaneity? I'm going to have to say routine. Final few questions. What is your one non-negotiable daily self-care habit? I generally do unguided meditation that's just kind of focusing on my breath. But I also do quite a bit of loving kindness meditation, which is really important for being compassionate to oneself as well as to other people. Love that. Is there anything that you have read, listened to or watched recently that you would like to recommend to listeners? I just watched The White Lotus. What did you think? I kind of loved it. I didn't think it was perfect. And obviously so many of the people, if not all of them, were infuriating characters. But I thought it was really smart in a lot of ways and everything seemed very deliberate to kind of make a particular comment, which I thought was really clever. So I recommend that. On the other hand, I've just finished reading an amazing book called When Breath Becomes Air by a doctor who was diagnosed in his mid-30s with sort of terminal lung cancer and he wrote the book uh, as he was dying. It is an extraordinary memoir and testament to how important it is to sometimes just accept what is and how you can avoid a lot of suffering by not fighting what is kind of out of your power to change. And, you know, I I encourage people to fight all the time. I think, you know, we should all be fighting till our last breath to change society. But obviously in in a situation like that, it's just, it's an incredible story and very moving. And finally, last question, what is one thing that you hope your future self will have achieved? I'd like to really be someone who enjoys waking up early. Is that, is that, is it true that as you get older, you need less sleep? I've just observed it in my dad. He seems to need fewer and fewer hours. So I'm really looking forward to that. Tessa, thank you so much. This has been super informative and really, really inspiring. And I'm really grateful for your positivity. It makes a big difference in these times. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. this conversation has inspired you what are you waiting for please do head to the episode notes for useful links on how you can take action it is time to do whatever you can to create change and slow global heating thank you so much for listening and i'll see you next week bye bye normally being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.